Lights, camera, action. Welcome to my uh, uh, second episode now in, in isolation here from my apartment in Brooklyn and Park Slope of Conversations with Charlie. My guest today, Jonathan Feingold. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Charlie. So uh, where, are, uh, where are we recording from today? Are you in your home? You're uh, somewhere else or... We are um, in the wonderful West Village, New York City, over on Charles Street, considered oh. by, by many um, to be one of the nicest uh, blocks in Manhattan. And I'm very fortunate enough to live in a very humble apartment uh, on this beautiful block. Oh, that is, uh, that is very fortunate. One of my... And you can see the full apartment right there. <laughs> one of my favorite, uh, favorite cross streets. Uh, as you know, I think I, I or maybe not, but I've, I've recently had an office not far away at uh, at Goldcrest on Horatio. Yeah, sure, sure. Walk by it frequently. Yes, 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 yes. So uh, let's start with. Uh, there's so much to go over. I mean, you've been a, 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 a DJ, an educator, worked in new media, worked as a music supervisor. You've had a career entangled in, uh, in all different forms of uh, working with music. Um, maybe, maybe wind the clock back to uh, your, maybe your relationship with music. Were you a musician? Were you, how, did your, how did your life begin in this, uh, in this world? It's a great question. Um, I play really poorly um, campfire folk songs um, on an acoustic guitar bought used. Um, beyond that, um, my love for music was based on my, um, on my parents' vinyl collection, which was mostly um, Barry White and things from Buddha Records. As I recall, I think something called Elephant Memory, I think it was called. Um, and from there, my other biggest music influences, while I was studying for my bar mitzvah, my parents bought me a cassette player. And when I was supposed to be studying my bar mitzvah um, prayers and things like that, I was actually playing their cassettes, which was Barry White's Greatest Hits, uh, The Beatles Abbey Road, and The Rolling Stones' Hot Rocks, rocks. very important yes and and so every time they would kind of poke their head in to see what i was doing i had my earphones in and i was and i was jamming to uh barry white and the stones and the beatles and this was 12 years old and uh so that was sort of some of my uh initial music influences um and my parents would bring home compilation eight tracks that a friend of theirs actually made, and it featured Hotline by the Silvers. I think that was the first song on there. And since you always start from the beginning on an eight track, I heard that song several hundred thousand times um, in my youth. The the eight track, right? I mean, uh, a, a a legacy, uh, a beautiful format, right? Fantastic. And the way that it skipped between tracks. I remember my parents used to have an eight-track player in one of their cars, and we used to have a few cassettes available. I think Elton John, Donna Summer. It was right. like it was one of those things that you, you kind of look forward. And then the tracks would sometimes skip, and it was such a cool format. Sure. And, 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 and the, the, the interesting that I think the history behind the A-Track is interesting, too, because it got used in different ways over its life, right? And finally, it went away. But, but yes, uh, it wasn't portable like a cassette was. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. So that was one of the biggest influences. And then I would say junior year high school, senior year high school, my parents had this gigantic um, Fisher receiver. And I grew up in Fairfield County in Connecticut in a small town called Trumbull. And New York City Radio was a reach, but it was possible. And so I took my parents' hanger, and I would constantly move it around and sort of create this antenna. And I would obsess over 92KTU listening to Baco and all of his amazing disco and soul and dance music. And 
um, for a clock or four thirty at Monday to Friday, WNYU and the new afternoon show and giving me sort of all the most amazing indie rock in this sort of uh, early eighties. And, um, and that was the reason why I said, I want to go to NYU. I want to work at this radio station. <laughs> wow. And your, and your parents, uh, uh, musical themselves, played instruments, just music lovers. Uh, uh, what, was it, what was it like? I mean, clearly you had uh, uh, the, their uh, uh, influences and, and great ones at that. Uh, but tell me a little bit about uh, the um, household and growing up. They were into going to concerts. They used to go to the Oakdale Theater and the New Haven Coliseum and see artists like Barry White perform, and I would always just get stories from them. And there is a rumor within my family that on my dad's side, um, I have a Eastern European great-grandfather -grand, who played in the Tsar's army um, and as some sort of Pfeiffer drum player. Um, but, I'm, but I don't have full clarity on that one. Interesting little piece of ancestral history there, for sure. Yes. yes. So, um, in your in your career, uh, uh, I'm we we know each other and have been in a parallel world. I've worked in post and in feature film and television all of my thirty plus years of doing this this business. But I I I was less aware uh, of your uh, early years working as a DJ at the Palladium in, the, in what was really somewhat of the golden era of the New York club scene. Uh, oh. Clubs like the, the, the Tunnel and Limelight and all of the above. Tell me about that time and, and tell me about how that, how, how that uh, was launched for you in your life. And was, sure. that in fact the, was that in fact the first real work opportunity or were there things that happened right before that or concurrent with that? Sure, sure. So... Really, I owe a lot of, um, of that to my days um, at WNYU. And so WNYU station, was the start. Yep. Was and basically, my parents dropped me off in, at, a, at a dorm called Weinstein, which later on, um, actually, which Def Jam Records was, was created in, and are glorious mayor de Blasio is also a alumnus of, and um, my parents dropped me off. They unpacked me and I literally went right to 566 LaGuardia place and joined the radio station. And I spent um, all of my undergrad and grad years, um, pretty much most of my free time at the radio station. And so that launched internships um, at record companies. And then that um, launched me, into clubs in New York City. I had a pretty popular um, hip hop radio show where I was fortunate to meet and interview um, artists such as Eric B and Rakim and, and Boogie Down Productions and De La Soul and Public Enemy and UTFO and LL Cool J. And so all these interviews gave me some cred and then that ended up getting me DJ gigs in New York City and um, I was working at a club called The World, um, two nights per week. I was doing Wednesdays and Fridays. Wednesdays, we were promoting hip hop parties, DJing, um, and bringing in all sorts of artists. Um, a lot of the groups I mentioned, and then I also remember concerts from Heavy D and the Boys and, and Public Enemy as well. And, um, and there's a great little story, so Fridays, um, I was working with a DJ partner named Livio G and Fridays um, was club night. So we would play mixtures of dance music and hip hop and classics. And a few months into our gig at the world, the owners, which were Steve Lewis, he was the manager actually, and Frank Rocchio and another gentleman, they sat us down and they said, guys, we have good news and bad news. The good news is, you get to keep Wednesday nights doing your hip hop DJing and promotion. But the bad news is we're giving Fridays to someone else. And I was like, well, who? And they end up turning over our Friday night um, to someone who I had no idea who he was until I researched it, but they turned it over to Frankie Knuckles. 
And as most of us know, he is really the originator of house music in terms of DJs. And we learned to love and respect Frankie and show up on Friday nights and hang out with him indeed and, and dance to his music. And so it was not bad to be replaced by someone like him. Um, and most of my DJ gigs were at the world. And then I did some other spot gigs, um, the Michael Todd room at the Palladium. Also a notable one was in uh, a late night, um, a club called Save the Robots, um, which was classic. It opened at 4 a.m. and closed, I think, at 10 a.m. <laughs> oh, my God, I love it. And it was over on Avenue A, maybe, and um, it lasted for many, many years. Um, and I, so I had some occasional gigs there as well. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that sort of is my whole sort of DJ on the radio, but then trans transferring it to DJing um, in, in the clubs and also promoting parties at the clubs. That was definitely an important thing. And back then, there was no email. There was beepers. So you would have to physically show up and go out every night to promote your event. You couldn't just flash an email out or even text someone or call someone. You can call someone at home, um, but you'd beep them, and then they would call you back. Wow. Yeah. So uh, uh, this was concurrent with the rise of other clubs like Tunnel, Limelight, and all of these other uh, uh, classic uh, 80s dance venues that were uh, these large venues that were lined up to the gills. And uh, you were doing that. Were you also doing private events? Did that also lead to you to do, did you end up making that into sort of a DJ private event business or it was the clubs itself? And then that led to other parts in your career, which we'll go into. Yeah, well, we end up doing some, um, what, what were they called? They were called, um, bootleg parties they were underground parties that were not legal um or they had they kind of skirted around the law and they would take on like a community center and they would um be able to sort of sell booze because the community center had a license so we did a bunch of those parties there was a term for that i'm drawing a blank on what that is i'm sure the listeners are all like it's called the illegal party or the bootleg party or the something it. parties. So we did a bunch. Um, I DJed a bunch of those and also promoted those. I recall something called Milky Way. Um, I recall something called Dig. And those were over on like Second Avenue and First Street. And, um, and, and they were amazing. Back then, when you DJ these parties, anyone would show up from the fashion world, from the LGBT community, from rappers to fashionistas, and you just had this mixed crowd. And that's really all due to the, to the great door people and the great promoters and, and managers of the clubs that really had this sort of gumbo of people. Um, and it, it was incredible. It, it really was. There was no bottle service back then. No, 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 no. I understand. <laughs> it was uh it was actually in a sense more democratic yeah right correct yeah. it was not about the money correct you're right it, yep because most people that really knew anybody that really were valuable were on the guest list anyways exactly yep so um this then leads to uh, uh some early work that you did you described you were involved with, uh, uh, I guess, with Rick Rubin at Def Jam and uh, Def Jam Records, correct? Yeah, it's so not exactly, sort of. Um, one of my um, first internships was for Lear Cohen um, over uh, in Soho um, at the Def Jam offices. I think they were on Varick Street at that point. And... Um, and so I would go into his office um, a couple of days a week and just sit on his couch that was um, that was encased. The fabric was Carhartt at that point, not leather, but Carhartt like jeans or Carhartt jackets, like yeah. a duck. And um, and I would just sit there and watch him work and do, let him do his thing. And so I learned a lot of interesting styles and techniques and. Um, and really, from Lior, I learned a lot about devotion and commitment 
um, and, and, and in some ways, like how to get what you want and how to make sure you take care of, of your people, you know? And then at the same time, while I was in undergrad, Def Jam was first started prior to this um, in my dorm. And I was not part of it in any way, except that I was aware of what was happening and I'd be hanging out at the front desk and all of a sudden Rick Rubin would show up and open up the first uh, cover artwork and show with the label and what the packaging was going to look like of the maroon cover. Or one day I was at WNYU working on the new afternoon show, hanging out with this DJ Weems and Rick came in with a quarter inch tape. And while Weems was DJing, Rick and Weems were editing the first single ever on Def Jam, which was Tila Rock and Jazzy J, It's Yours. And so I was just sitting there watching Weems and Rick Rubin edit. And, and it was amazing because Weems is on the radio and then every time he's in between a song, he goes over and he takes the quarter inch machine and moves it around in a razor blade and edits Rick's first single. Um, and then being, at Weinstein, you'd just go downstairs in the basement and um, you would see the Beastie Boys rehearsing. Um, Rick was the party um, chair for the dorm um, and he would bring in these crazy three-way sound systems, which I didn't fully comprehend. And this was in a dormitory basement and these were three-way systems that were insanely powerful and loud and he would DJ, and the year he graduated, I took over the party committee, and then I was in charge of the parties. Um, and we still kind of took all the things that he did and repeated them, basically. He just yeah. knew how to make a lot of, lot of good, good quality noise. And, but once again, you, you had said that, that, that you had a, 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 a period of your life where you were actually, or was this not, where you just, was it just something that you had collided with at that period, had you actually worked with Def Jam or, or not? Oh yeah, interning for Lee R. Cohen, who was the co-president or the general manager, you know, ran, ran the label um, for uh, Rick and Russell at that point. So yeah. I was an unpaid intern that just showed up and learned the ropes, but I was learning it from, you know, the man at the top. Got it. Yeah. And then would that, was that what, what led to, to, to your, your, your time at, at Island Records and uh, working as an A&R executive? Sure, so um, the first, um, when I finished grad school at NYU, my first gig um, was director of A&R at Island Records. And my focus was on the 4th and Broadway label um, and worked with um, hip-hop artists and work with some club artists. I remember this Italian disco crew called the 49ers, which were pretty big. And I remember some hip-hop stuff, the X-Clan. Um, and while Chris Blackwell was my boss, um, I didn't see him that, I didn't work with him that much. But my mentors um, and people that I worked most closely with and learned a lot from were a pretty impressive um, bunch of guys. Um, one was Hugo Burnham, the drummer of the Gang of Four. Another was Kevin Patrick, who was the, um, later on, I guess, became the manager of, of, of the Cramps, but he was the, the head of A&R, and him and Hugo were both vice presidents of A&R. And so they were sort of my, my godfathers there. I would kind of poke my head in and ask a lot of questions and figure things out from them. Um, and then the boss of the label um, was a guy named Pat Monaco, who later on went to, to run Def Jam, actually, and be, I think, a general manager there. And he and I are doing business right now as of today. Wow. And, Tell me about that. That was in 1989-90. And wow. we're going to be working with him on some music synchronization supervision projects and he's now working with um, Anderson Pack um, on his roster. Um, so it, it's things come around. It's a small world out there. What What's the current project that this is? 
Um, we're going to be representing his label, um, and it's a label that he is running for and with Steve Bartles and Doug Morris, and um, they have all sorts of frontline artists through the Warner through the Warner Brothers system, and we're going to help him out on all the synchronization and uh, licensing areas and try to get some of his artists uh, and songs into film and TV and ads and things like that. Ah, full circle, which is a perfect transition. Yeah. Uh, to your life as a as a music supervisor which i mean from at least from a, a credit standpoint this sort of begins after 2000 right i mean you, you spent a lot of years uh, as sort of in the music only world correct yeah I, I come from um the record company side right and um that's not the case that much in, in the music uh-oh sorry hold on I lost you for a weird second. Hold on, what's happening? Are we there? I'm, we, I see you. Okay, good that you see me because then that's what's being taped, right? Okay, good, now we got no, no, it. We're both being taped. Uh, we're both on screen simultaneously. Okay, so you just missed me for a second. Right. So, um, uh, edit and... Um, <laughs> so, um, I worked for several different labels. Um, in order to get from island to to the last 10 years or so of music supervision and music licensing and i worked um at the famous ktel label and but wait there's more <laughs> and i worked for a, a label called q records which was through atlantic and owned by qvc and i worked on a bunch of interesting um it was in charge of some projects that uh, Dick Clark um, was behind and also some Broadway shows like The Music Man. Um, and then at KTEL, I was just doing lots and lots of compilations for them. So at KTEL, I learned this whole part of the record business um, that few people understand or know about, and it's called Special Markets. And that's where I learned all about licensing and sync licensing. And... And then after my days at the Q label, the QVC label, I, um, I went on my own, started up my own, my own company um, representing music for synchronization. And my first client, and, which lasted for many, many years until they sold, was Greensleeves Records, the famous dance hall and reggae label featuring everything from Mr. Vegas to John Holt to Shaggy to Ica Mouse. Um, to uh, Yellow Man. And, and so that launched me into the whole supervision world and kind of gave me some initial credibility uh, on the left coast. And, um, and then things just progressed from there. And um, I think it was interesting because I was again coming from the music record company side. So a lot of my contacts and connections were music contacts, music connections. I knew the record company people um, which to this day is super helpful um, because I know the manager of bands, managers of bands, and I know bands and artists directly. Um, and that, that really, you know, is, is helpful. Interesting. And so in the music uh, uh, supervision world, uh, people come at it from many angles and get hired from many different uh, sort of vantage points. Yours with a great foundation uh, in in with labels and and directly with uh, 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 I guess with in a certain in certain cases directly with artists, right? I mean, so you were you were uh, uh, very dialed in, and also the the idea of of understanding all of the legal aspects of fair use and licensing and and how uh, 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 films who are frequently budget challenged to use music can find a way to use all the music that they want to uh, yep. for film, which yep. becomes sort of the anchor of, uh, of, of what you, you, part of what you bring to the table when you work on a film. So um, in a sense, what, when you started in, in early work, what, what were the, the challenges and, and what were some of the bigger uh, uh, projects where you uh, had real uh, uh, challenges finding uh, uh, the licensing and the ability to get the music to go through and get the the creatives and the filmmakers what they wanted. 
So, um, wow. Um, you know, everyone, a lot of people um, want to be music supervisors, just like they all wanted to be A&R people um, in the prior decade or two. And what people are just finally starting to become hip to is that music supervisors, um, a lot of the work that they're doing is clearance work. It's really the reality of it because we're dealing with even more hyper-creative people in the sense of um, directors and script writers. And script writers are putting songs right in and directors are having visions of the kind of music they want. So a lot of the things that we're doing is not like, oh, we get to pick cool music for a cool scene. But a lot of it is the, the hustle of the clearance process, the ability um, to make budgets work, um, and, um, and sometimes hire composers. And then, yes, um, it helps to know artists and know managers and have relationships with labels because when you get, uh, when you get shut down on a song and you can't get it, that's when you need um, you know, to kind of pull out your Rolodex and try to make a call or two and try to get something turned around or try to get something super cheap. And in terms of stories, there are a couple of great stories that I've got um, in terms of clearances. Um, I would say um, I was having trouble with this particular track after the record company um, in, in Israel said, no problem. Um, we agree on the, the deal. We agree on the fee. Everything is fine. And then when push came to shove, they came back to me and said, oh, sorry, the artist has become religious. Your song from the 70s, um, this artist has now, you know, become orthodox and religious, and he feels that the song um, is not appropriate. And it was a risque um, TV show and a risque scene. Um, and so... I was blown away because the mix was about to occur and they needed to really get this sorted. And my rep is on the line when I say something is good and then I don't follow through with it. So I kept going back to them. Uh, we kept offering more money. That didn't seem to be the issue. And I called my dad and I asked him his advice in regards to contacting my grandfather's rabbi. And what we did is we asked my grandfather's rabbi, who was Orthodox, to write a letter to the artist. And he wrote this most beautiful, heartfelt letter, how if you can help out a man in, in dire need that the, the value of that is so much more important than anything in this world and that it, to in, keep his reputation intact is vital and, and to save and help someone in a desperate need is way more valuable than anything. And, and so he sent this amazing letter, gave it to me on his letterhead and I got in touch with the artist directly sent it and sure enough it it opened up and warmed this this artist's heart and he said no problem i'm happy to do this let's make it happen and then a few days later we got the uh, approvals and clearances we needed and of course i had to give some money to the rabbi <laughs> a donation let's say but it was all good and so you sometimes got to go above and beyond to get the rights to something. Um, and it's just what you do, you know, and you want to make your director happy. And those are the things that your director or your post-production or your, or your producers, you know, remember. You know? Wow. Cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And looking through your filmography, I mean, we've, we've collided on a few things. So I'm working yep. with some guys that are producing a, a documentary series currently and uh, that had worked on the project that you did, The Magic of Heineken, which is actually sort of a, more of sort of a branded content piece that you worked on. So you work on a lot of different stuff. 
Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what the challenges were on that, just out of curiosity. Well, that was the kind of project, first of all, it was, that was a new, uh, an early project in my career. Um, and it kind of set me off in, in many ways because I've sort of become um, a, I don't want to say expert because I'm not there yet, but on my way to becoming an expert in the documentary world. And it's not something that typical music supervisors want to do a lot of because it doesn't pay that well and it's a lot of work, but I've sort of developed a niche in it early on and, um, and, and that might've been one of the first projects that I did where that was a doc. Um, and so it really intrigued me. And then of course, as we all know, the last few years, docs got super hot and now everybody wants to be part of the doc world. Um, but I, I really am fascinated by docs and I really enjoy sort of, um, sort of understanding what fair use is about and, and understanding public domain and, and these sort of things that are off, that are used often in in the documentary um, world, you know. And you also did some work on a project that uh, that I was on called "The Times of Bill Cunningham." Talk a little bit about that and how that worked out. Yeah, and another great doc. Um, Bill Cunningham was an amazing um, human being for so many reasons, and Mark Bozak, my director, and Jonathan Gray, one of the producers and also counsel, all amazing people to work with. That was a real fun project, and that was a project that um, Mark gave me definitely some creative freedom on. And there's a scene um, where the, it's a montage of all of the gay pride parade photos. And I think initially Mark wanted, I want to, I think he wanted Donna Summer Hot stuff, something that was really obvious. And I convinced him to give another song a shot, a shot, no pun intended. And it's, um, it was a song that not only worked, um, but also the lyrics kind of played into, in well to everything. And it was a song called Hot Shot by Karen Young. And so it fit the disco vibe really well, female vocal, but the lyrics are about, I need a hot shot. And of course, shot is like photography. And so it had all sorts of double meanings. And I think that that was just one of my favorite uses, um, you know, in, in that documentary. Um, it's a really, really fun project, you know. I think they also had a, a, a fair amount of licensing that they did, or at least music that they used from Moby. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Moby and Mark um, had met up at one point and Moby um, Moby's super flexible on independent projects. And I think we ended up using eight Moby tracks and it was at a very, you know, favorable um, fee to allow us to do it because our budgets were just super limited. Um, and that's part of the, what I do as a supervisor on docs is it's all about just working and finessing the budgets, coming up with creative ways to bring in amazing music at, 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 at much cheaper prices. And, um, so yeah, it's it, it was great to work um, and get some Moby tracks in there. Do you also get engaged with uh, films where they need help, even in in the in the realm of of working and hiring a composer? Because that's not always the job of a music supervisor, is it? Yeah, no, it's not. Um, it you really take the director's lead on these things and a lot of, and sometimes supers are hired when a film hits post and a composer has already been in the mix. Luckily, um, and recently I was hired, um, early on in a project and they were first time directors and producer. So they let me take the lead and that was an amazing um, project. It's, uh, it's scheduled, probably for early 2021 and it's called charming the hearts of men stars Kelsey Grammer and it's early sixties, um, movie that's shot, uh, down South, mostly in the Georgia area. And there's a lot of juke joint, um, scenes and things like that. And so I was brought in early because there was a couple of on camera scenes with dancing. And so we wanted to clear a couple songs up front. 
Um, so the actors could dance to the scenes and, and keep things on beat. And so it was just a great opportunity. And there's some amazing, amazing music in, in this movie. There's a Curtis Mayfield track, and then there's song called Wang Dang Doodle. And, and there's an amazing um, composer that, um, that I brought in um, from the West Coast. And I, I can't get too much into it, but um, no problem. super excited to have him um, to be part of the project. You know. And you, you uh, had mentioned another project that I had briefly collided with called Lennox Hill. I don't know much about what you did on that. Tell me more about that. Sure. Um, that was um, Ruthie and Addie, producer, director, team, and they pretty much knew what they wanted. Um, a lot of times, all the time, we just did the clearances for them. And, you know, we watched, of course, we have to watch everything to determine. Um, if there's songs and music that need to be cleared, we help bring in and coordinate fair use attorneys. Um, but that was mostly a lot of clearance work and just watching, listening to things. And we did some creative work with them, but in the end, um, it was really their tracks that they wanted. Um, and the highlights in there, um, I would say Jill Scott and Radiohead were two highlights. And that debuts June 10th. And it's a Netflix exclusive, and um, it's about the hospital systems in New York City at, at Lenox Hill. Um, and it's a must. It really, it will have, your, it, it's hair raising, and it gives you goosebumps, and I shed a few tears, and, um, and it's, it's really moving, and it's very timely with what's happening in terms of healthcare and in terms of um, COVID-19. and um, so I'm kind of giving a plug for it, right? <laughs> I don't know that. I love it. Lennox Hill. It's one N in Lennox. That's right. But it's actually um, you can go on to Netflix's website now, and you can um, you can save it. Um, uh, I've noticed they just put it up the other day. It's an eight part docu series. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. And uh, uh, another gentleman that I ran into uh, just in, in my own path, uh, post supervising and working in docs. Uh, was a gentleman by the name of Michael Dweck who made a film called The Truffle Hunter. Tell me yep. about The Truffle Hunter. I was fascinated by the amount of time it took for him to make this film uh, and, uh, and how, what a journey it was. He's, by origin, really um, uh, of a renowned still photographer. Yeah. And uh, uh, he went ahead and made this documentary and, and at last year's uh, Sundance was uh, purchased by Sony Classics. And yeah. What an amazing success. Uh, tell me about the journey uh, of working on that, that project and what you, you did. You know, um, I'm just lucky. I'm lucky that um, Michael worked on a project the prior year that I helped him clear one song for pro bono just to do the right thing. And, and then I get a call in December, um, this past December, saying, hey, my, my doc is in Sundance. I need you in four weeks to get this, um, to music supervise this project. And we actually gave him a bunch of songs that we end up um, using. So we replaced some of the initial songs that he wanted um, that really fit well. Um, fair use was an important part of this project as well. And we really went, I mean, we went crazy and we had to get this thing done immediately um, because we were debuting. Um, I think it was on the 21st of January and you had to deal with Christmas and, um, and the record companies closing during Christmas. And also we were clearing music that involved Italian songwriters and Italian artists. And therefore uh, the, um, they were also on holiday. So it was, it was a large project and it was, you know, a very tight budget, but we made it work. And I was ecstatic that, Sony Classics, you know, bought it. And um, it's, I, I think it's going to come out towards the end of this year and it will open up in theaters and um, don't miss it. It's an amazing project. And I can't wait. And Michael and his partner there on that doc, they just did an incredible, incredible job. The music is, is cool. It's a great story. And um, you'll also shed a tear there as well. 
yeah, it, it sounds like an absolutely remarkable project and uh, uh, what a what a journey it was to make it. Um, you you have worked as a, a professor uh, over the years, uh, a big theme in your life, Marymount uh, College, as well as the Clive Davis School at NYU. T talk a little bit about being a, uh, an educator and a professor. Okay, one second. Okay, I'm getting a lot of messages and I'm trying to uh, tell people to stop messaging me for a moment. So, let's, when I was in grad school at NYU, um, I, got, I got asked by the department head, hey, prepare a syllabus for this undergraduate class. Um, we might need you. And all of a sudden, as a second year grad student, I'm thrown into teaching undergrads um, in introduction to the music industry. And it ended up lasting for a few years. And then I decided that I really love teaching and that I wanted to eventually teach full time. But I realized that um, I needed more war stories. I needed to talk about, you know, uh, late night, Late, late nights and concerts and, and crazy things that occurred in, in rock and roll and in hip hop and that I needed to kind of go out there and start doing stuff. So I went back into the work world and, and worked for all these different labels. And then um, around 10 years ago, I started teaching again with the Clive Davis School of Recorded Music um, in the NYU uh, Tisch School. They had started up this program and I got asked um, to do an A&R class there. And so for maybe three, three four semesters, um, I taught um, the A&R class. And then at the same time, I was on adjunct staff, took place, um, took part of the, the uh, formulation of the program and helped on the admissions committee and did, you know, regular meetings to help kind of um, direct, you know, ways um, to where the program was heading. It was a great experience. Um, and then from there, I taught over at the other NYU music business program called Music Business Technology in Steinhardt School. And then I also taught over um, at Marymount Manhattan College, which is where I currently reside. And um, I was just thinking a good little story from the Clive Davis School um, I brought in a couple of guests at one point and, and so one class I brought in Q-tip from Tribe Called Quest. And so all of a sudden my students are sitting there like, oh my God. And he hung out for an hour or two, talked about him being an artist and A&R and all sorts of things, you know, music related and Tribe Called Quest related. And that was an amazing experience. And then another time I brought George Clinton in. To, wow. to class, but then they end up moving the class physically to where the whole department could sit in. Um, but that was really an interesting um, time. And I'm sure there were some other cool speakers and definitely a lot of industry executives I brought in over the years. Um, and uh, it just reminded me about a few, a few of them, yeah. Um, and then right now, um, I'm teaching music supervision and music licensing class over at um, Marymount, and it's the first time I've taught that class exactly, um, and so it's an experiment. Um, and they're, they're, that school is sort of thinking of creating a minor, a music industry minor that um, a music, in, yeah, industry minor that I will be formulating for them. So I'm hoping that that might start. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to be this fall or next spring, but soon. And um, I think that 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 would be pretty cool. Wow, cool. Yeah. And in terms of uh, of of the uh, the current uh, uh, status of the way things are working, I'm, my son's a university student up in upstate New York, but he's home taking classes online. Are you giving classes online this semester? Oh yeah, you can join in Tuesday nights, seven twenty to ten, ten oh one. I'll audit that class. Um, yeah, it's, we're on Zoom, and it's interesting, and I, I like it, um, 
I mean, of course you want to be in person, but I like it because I'm able to show the students my computer. And so I can jump to a website and go on to ASCAP.com or BMI.com, log onto my account and show them what a cue sheet is, show them what royalties look like. Um, so I like that. I can jump on and show them a brief from an ad agency that came in. And so they could, I mean, I could up, upload that to the Blackboard um, and then they can share it that way. But some things I don't want them to have, I just want them to look at it. And um, so we've been able to kind of go through things um, that they can, that I can share screens with. So I really like that, that aspect of it. Um, but I like being in front of people. You know, I've done a lot of master classes and different lectures. And, um, and so it's, uh, it's exciting and it's definitely gives me a little bit of a rush. And I guess it's equivalent to like a, a rock and roller, you know, playing, performing live, you know, like that's what I can bring to the table because I can't bring my shitty guitar, acoustic guitar singing, um, blowing in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> so you had mentioned to me uh, uh, when we were talking in a sidebar a little bit about some of the, the new media stuff that you've been involved in. I think there was something for Spotify. I can't remember if Pineapple or what the pod, it was a podcast. Tell me a little bit about that and, and, and about uh, this sort of new media work that you're doing that falls out perhaps of, uh, sure. of the music supervision world. Sure. So, um, you know, new media, there are areas where um, if the music is going to end up staying on the Internet or, you know, on, on the World Wide Web, then rights need to be secured. It's not like a one time stream coming from Spotify. So um, the Oculus um, has a company called Supersphere and Supersphere is doing concerts. Um, where you would put on the Oculus and watch the concerts and you'll be in the venue. And so both you and I can go in and watch a show as an avatar, look at each other as avatars, but then be watching the same fish show at Madison Square Garden on Halloween night or whatever it might be. And so that allows the population to increase. And it's interesting because of social distancing, it might become more relevant than ever. You know, they might not be able to put 19,800 people at Madison Square Garden for a fish show. They might have to cut it back. And so, so maybe- Tell me a little bit about how that works. You have, so you have Oculus, which is a VR company. Yep. The shows that you're describing, correct me if I'm wrong, these are shows that have already happened, right? They're not live shows. Or, correct. Right. But, or they might be, they might be like, because of, um, social distancing, they're discussing doing some concerts at people's houses. Aha. So there is uh, a future opportunity for live performance and VR uh, viewing. Now, tell me the, the metrics on this for, and the economics on this for concert promoters and people that are trying to get people engaged. Uh, it, does this also involve ultimately ticket sales and uh, subscriptions or something. I mean, there's got to be a financial aspect to that. How right. Is that all working? So Supersphere is, is a company, you know, where you would log in and then through them, you would be able to watch the concert with the Oculus being the, the hardware. And because it's just not a one-time stream and because it's going to be um, accessible on demand, you need to get music rights for it. So I'm the music supervisor for that. But again, I'm just doing the clearances and getting them the rights and negotiating those rights for them. So then it can sit and live somewhere and stay somewhere for a certain period of time. So these are, these are uh, 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 sort of virtual events, right? Uh, that, that live on a site. Yep, yep. And you can go back and uh, uh, in, in, in the, uh, at least in the Oculus VR world, you can go back and say, hey, I want to go see a concert from when and whatever, whenever it was. And you can log in, put on your goggles and watch a show and even invite friends to go with you. Right. That's, yeah, that's one of the other things. You could all schedule yourself to go. And then 
The other thing I'm working on um, through a company called Pineapple Media, um, I'm doing a podcast um, called Seeds of Change. And, and so we, I think it's eight, ep- 10 episodes. And, and so um, it's a story I can't get too much into detail, um, but it involves the CIA and the fall of the wall in Berlin. And it is, um, it has music in it. And it has not just songs um, during the project, but it has like an intro and an outro sort of title songs that are being played. And they're not a theme necessarily, but it's a song from like Rat Tat Tat, for instance. And so we have to get rights to that because it's gonna sit on um, websites and it's gonna sit where you can demand it at any point in time that you want. It will also debut um, on Spotify as well. And um, so it's called Seeds of Change. It's dropping, I wanna say May 10th. Um, And especially if you're a fan of heavy metal and rock and roll and the the band Scorpions, you will uh, thoroughly enjoy um, this sort of, uh, this project, you know, it's a a fun one. Interesting. So these are two new media projects that you're doing currently while, while teaching. Yep. Uh, after Bill Cunningham, you did projects like Leaving Now and, uh, and uh, Blessed Child and Awakening and Antarctica. Tell me a little bit about some of the other projects Ooh. that you've, uh, you've rattled through in your filmography. Sure. Sure. My pleasure. Um, I'm Leaving Now was called um, Yo Soy... Um, God, they're going to kill me if I don't remember what it, what it was called. Um, so um, I'm leaving now, and I'll remember it, I'm sure, in a second. Um, it's about a, um, a Brooklyn, um, a, a Mexican who's living in Brooklyn, who is here illegally but, and sends money home to his family, and, but he's never seen his youngest son. And so he's trying to decide, oh, it's called Yamavoy. Um, he's trying to decide um, as time runs out in his life um, and as he's getting older to go back home to see the son that he's never seen, who's now a teenager. And, and so the question is, should I stay or should I go? because he, if he leaves to go, he might not get back into America. And in Brooklyn, he's basically cleaning up mikvahs and collecting cans and bottles and lives in a very small little basement apartment and, and sends money home to his family, um, which is, I think is three, three kids and, and a wife. And the wife really doesn't want him to come home. The wife just wants the money. And, and so the movie ends up um, using the class, should I stay or should I go? And, um, and then we en- ended up having it recorded by Xenia Rubios um, in Spanish. And that was also a tough clearance, that, that song. And the Clash don't want and don't care about the money as much as, as you would expect from The Clash, as much as they do about the project itself. And so we had to jump through a lot of hoops and we had to get a lot of approvals in terms of Mick Jones and then um, and Joe Strummer's estate. And we had to even send footage. And in the end, it, it cost nothing. It was like, you know, $1,000 or something. So it was super cheap, but it was nothing to do with the money. It was really about the project itself. And it's a really, you know, meaningful documentary um, about um, immigration. And um, I, I highly recommended it. It came out in January, um, and I know a bunch of people that have seen it in Mexico um, as well. And it's in subtitles, um, you know, English subtitles. Um, but it's called I'm Leaving Now or Yamavoy. Nice. And then you went on to do uh, And We Go Green, Blessed Child, and a few others like this. What, any... any uh, any highlights um, for those? Blessed Child's about the Moonies. Just got distribution. Just has, 
you know, that's a great example of like, I'm being called a music super. And the reality is I just cleared the end title song for them. And then that was it. And yes, I chose the song or it was a song that they that I gave them that they liked. And it was from an amazing um, sort of reggae artist based in Hawaii named Mishka, who used to be signed to, um, used to be signed to Jimmy Buffett's label. Um, and also was first discovered actually by the president of creation records and was signed to creation in the UK. Um, so that's just an example of giving a great track. They liked it. They want to use it. I'm part of my fee is that I get the title music supervisor. Um, so that's, um, that will come out, I think later this year, I was just in touch. Just reminded me I have to call her. Um, and, um, Let's see the other projects. I'm trying to think what else maybe that is new that I haven't there mentioned. Was, uh, there was Awakening in Antarctica. Yeah, Antarctica's um, trying to get distribution. It's a fun little movie. That's actually got a great story as well. So I will I will reference that. Um, so I start working on Antarctica. Um, I start working on Antarctica last year and and Billie Eilish was on the rise and her song might have just hit number one and my the owner of the of the film company producing it not the director the owner said let's get Billie Eilish bad guy let's get it it's such a great song it's perfect for this club scene that we've got, which is a house party. It'd be great. So I said, fine, you know, your wish is my command. So I go in and I actually cleared the song for a surprisingly reasonable fee and affordable by standards from, um, by our budget. And we were watching um, playback before the mix. And I said, I got to be honest, I said, based on the voiceover and, and what's happening in the scene, you almost can't really hear the song. And I said, let's come up with some alternates and just have some alternate ideas. And when we mix it, if there's a way to boost it up and it sounds good, then we'll use it. But if we realize that it's lost, then we'll use the backup track. And, and so the owner of the, of the company, um, who is amazing and I adore her, Kim Jackson, she said, okay, it sounds like a great plan. And then her question was, well, can we say the movie features Billie Eilish or a music from Billie Eilish? And I said, no, you cannot do that. I said, if it was a new song, that you paid for, you could say features a new song by Billie Eilish. I said, but you're just licensing in the song. You don't have those, those type of rights. You can get those rights, but it's going to cost a lot of money. Um, and so in the mix, we end up going with the other track because you just couldn't hear the song. And I just said, it's not worth spending that amount of money and we got something for like a thousand bucks. And the person that got the thousand dollars calls me every month and says, Oh my God, thank you so much. I love being in that movie. And we made their year. Billie Eilish would have been just, you know, it, she probably would have not even processed it. So it was a win win. And, um, and so I thought it was kind of an interesting story, you know? Yeah, that is interesting. So, a freeze frame on that thought for a second, though, that I, I found kind of interesting. The idea is that that you can get the licensed rights to a piece, but if you want to uh, uh, literally market the idea, not only that the cuts in there, but to actually have it in 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 what you're saying about the film featuring a song by Billie Eilish, that adds to the cost. That would be on any project, correct? Yeah, I mean, look, if you if you were doing a um, a soundtrack for the album, you could put you know features songs from, but you would ask the label and get approval. 
And they might say, yes, you can put us, but you have to put us the same size as you put all the other artists. And you can't just put us. You can't take advantage of the situation unfairly or without paying for it properly, you know. To create marquee value, you know, yeah. yeah you exactly. Interesting. Any other uh, uh, fabulous uh, uh, new media stuff you're doing or feature films that we have not landed on that you have great stories about that you'd like to talk about? I'm always interested in. in sure. Um, the, the lavender scene. You did work for Jonathan Gray on Pottersville. You worked on Tribal Justice, Marjorie Prime, all kinds of films going back. Yeah, I mean, Marjorie Prime was a great project that got into Sundance and that won um, a science award um, or best sci-fi or science-driven film at Sundance maybe three, four years ago. So that, that was exciting. But my director, you know, he knew exactly what he wanted. I just got him the rights. And that we end up getting um, Bob Dylan for that one. And that's an interesting one, too. Bob Dylan's not that challenging to clear as long as he likes the project and wants to do it. Um, and you go directly to his manager, um, who's like lives in the village or lives somewhere in New York City and puts his. Yeah. So that 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 was awesome to have, um, you know, for for marquee artists like that. It's really about they want to have their name associated with the right type of projects, you know. So. Did you see the documentary uh, Echo in the Canyon? Mm. It was about the music scene in uh, uh, Laurel, Laurel Canyon. Oh, yeah, I didn't see it, but I, I'm, they're the ones that played on Pet, Pet Sounds. Not sure about that, but I, they, they actually, I mean, in the case of that, uh, 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 Jake Dillon actually created like a little band that went with it. And when they premiered it, they all played the songs. And it was all these folk artists that had moved out to Los Angeles. I would imagine on these types of projects uh, uh, where you have so many of these folks, it must be uh, uh, quite a process to do that type of clearance where it's really uh, 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 music driven. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When it's a music-driven project, um, it takes a lot of work. And I am working on something right now that I can't get into too much, but it's a biopic documentary about, you know, about a, a, a heritage artist. And it will take a lot of work. Um, but what you try to do is you try to line it all up ahead of time and, and before you even enter the project. So then everyone's on board, you know. Right, right. I mean, that's... Uh... That's the uh, that's the whole prep side, the the part that the gotcha that people get caught with when they uh, when they they go along and do everything that they want to do and then bring in the music supervisor too late. Yep, 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 exactly, exactly. What about you? How are you doing today? <laughs> what are you working on, Charlie? I'm working on a music documentary series myself, but I'm under. Uh, uh, a bit of a uh, uh, what is it they call it a, uh, uh, a non it's a non-disclosure exactly it's a six episode series on a hip-hop artist and uh, it's mostly shot not fully shot mostly shot in Los Angeles we're posting here in New York and it's cool. exciting thing I am working on a developing another project that we may need to call call you on it's a documentary on the the life of the great Hawaiian entertainer Don Ho. Oh, yeah, I love it. Yeah. I'd, so. I'd be honored to work on something like that. <laughs> Pull out my ukulele, it's strong. Tiny bubbles. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, he's a legend. I mean, he's really a legend. Yeah, and, uh, and a character that was born in uh, 1930, uh, uh, 29 years before Hawaii becomes a state. So it's, uh, it's oh, wow. an interesting uh story of uh, sort of a native Hawaiian son that becomes sort of the symbol of the island. So it's in many ways more about the uh, iconic individual than it is really about the music itself. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful, uh, uh, Jonathan. Thank you so much for coming on to do this uh, episode with us. Uh, uh, very exciting. And uh, uh, thank you. And uh, I, I really appreciate this. And, uh, and uh, you be well and stay safe. And uh, we'll, 
we'll 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 be uh, talking soon. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. Thank you for for the time, and thank you for thinking of of interviewing me. I'm just a humble dude who loves music and um, and yeah, just cherishes and enjoys every day. You know, one day at a time. Stay safe, everyone. Yes, stay safe, everyone. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah. Brother. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.